This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is TV Take, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. On today's show, we'll talk with Matt Ingebretson, Jake Weissman, and Pat Bishop of the Comedy Central series Corporate, which premieres its second season January 15th. Later, critics Daniel Daddario and Caroline Framke will preview the shows they're most looking forward to in 2019. And I'll talk with Variety's Michael Schneider about Sunday's Golden Globe Awards. Stay tuned. We're here with Pat Bishop, Matt Ingebretson, and Jake Weissman of the Comedy Central show Corporate. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. So corporate is a workplace comedy, fairly dark, uh, set in a, a company called Hampton DeVille. Um, where did where did the idea for Hampton DeVille come from, and what exactly does that company do? Um, the idea for the company came from it's sort of like a mashup of like Berkshire Hathaway or GE companies that sort of own everything and make every like do everything from insurance to make bombs where it's like what do these have to do with each other and why are you doing both at the same time um and Hampton DeVille in the show the tagline for the company is we make everything so they're sort of the same thing where they make everything from condoms to biochemical weapons like just sort of a confusing, inappropriate amount of, uh, you know, capitalist uh, greed going on. So what what is, is there something that's inherently funny, I guess, about these big corporations that sort of have their hand in every pot in the economy? I think it's like kind of mysterious in some ways. And uh, also there's kind of like some brands are described as like hollow brands where it's they put their name on everything like Apple but they less and less controlled or are responsible for like actually producing it or actually making anything. And I think we think of that way with Hampton DeVille's, they just kind of stamp their logo on everything almost as if the kind of end goal is like at the end of it, there would only be one company right? that would just make everything. And that's sort of like, I think that's funny to us or the sort of like in drive of any of these companies or growth that just is constantly like trying to make more and more, but to like what end. There's also just something funny about like on a very basic level, what, what should be happening is somebody makes a product and then they sell the product to somebody who needs it. But when you scale up things to such an extreme degree that they are in a global economy, it's very confusing. And the people making decisions over what's made and, and what goes into that are so disconnected from the actual product that bizarre things happen. And uh, we thought it would be fun to mine the comedy and some of that. So uh, you guys, this we're, season two of the show is premiering uh, in uh, January. When when did you guys come up with the idea for doing this sort of like, you know, workplace comedy with a pretty unsparing view of the corporate world? Well, I think part of the reason we wanted to make an office comedy that... We, we wanted to make an office comedy that accurate, 
accurately reflected how we felt at Jobs, where there's plenty of office comedies that are excellent. Obviously, the British and the American office being probably the most famous ones. But the, I mean, <laughs> they really claim the title, The Office. Um, <laughs> but the the thing about them, and they're fantastic shows, some of the best ever. However, we've never really seen a show where it felt like you wanted to die at work, which is how everyone feels. That's how you feel. Um, there's no question. And it you're is. Thankful. Yeah. It's like you're thankful for this thing that's killing you. And you're <laughs> thankful for this thing where you had to um, contradict your morality and your altruism about life uh, in order to pay for the accruing debts that you get over um, your life. And so we just wanted to show that was like, I hate my job, I hate my life, but I have no other choice and this is what life is. And I, I know a lot of people don't think they want to watch that, but it is funny because it is your life and like you get one chance at life and then you waste it at this job you don't really like. And that uh, her- that tragedy is hilarious to us. Yeah, I mean, that is what's funny about the show. It is incredibly dark and it should be depressing, but it is also sadly like really, really relatable when you're watching it. I mean, and not in a way that it's like, oh, yeah, that's how every office is. It's like, oh, my God, that's how every office is. <laughs> Yeah, I think hopefully um, a lot of the comedy I loved early in my life was me being able to see myself in in these characters to some extent, and uh, and also get a point of view that on my own life that didn't make me feel so alone by like, oh, other people are going through this. Oh, and maybe it's even funny, and that's very helpful to me to be able to laugh at my own misery. So hopefully, this show achieves that to some extent. Yeah. Uh, you guys created the show together, Matt and Jake. You star in it, um, and as two guys named Matt and Jake who share a windowless office, which um, was a mistake, by the way. We, when we <laughs> when we first started creating the show out of sort of laziness, we were like, "All right, we'll name him Matt and Jake, and we'll probably change it later." And then we just never did. Yeah, was it really a mistake? Did was it did that blow back the not a mistake, but but early on when we were creating it, um, we were just sort of like at a very early phase. You are like of creating the show. It's like, okay, what are the characters' names? I don't want to fucking... That, that's unimportant. Let's just right. come up with the next part. And so it's like Matt and Jake. And then you get four or five months into it. It's like, well, I guess we're going with Matt and Jake. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I was a kid, I always used to wonder if, on Cheers, if Woody would get confused if they were talking like about him or about the character oh, when they were yeah. talking about Woody. So. It does create a funny kind of blurred line of who Matt and Jake are and their characters. And like when, at a certain point, they like focus-tested the show, and they focused on specifically the characters, Matt and Jake. So it's like, okay, so we have some data on who, uh, so we find Matt is more likable. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> but Jake is a fan favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds uh, that sounds horrifying. Yeah, it is horrifying. We know the percentage of people in a focus group who like us. <laughs> Thankfully, it's pretty high, but... <laughs> There's also just this meta thing that happens when you make a show called corporate where you you're essentially trying to criticize corporate culture and sort of the structure of everything but then of course you can only do that by being part of corporate culture and we're part of comedy central which is part of viacom which is part of the lord in the sky that that controls us all uh the capitalist (laughs) lord so i feel like we're constantly you know we were focus tested and therefore we had to put focus testing into the show because whatever happens to us is just a product of being these weird corporate little icons now so there is a meta-ness to what we're going through 
Has there ever been an experience with Viacom where, or with, you know, the various divisions of Viacom that you guys uh, have interacted with where it, it was like, Hey, this is a little too close to home or anything like that. Um, no, we're personal friends with Sumner Redstone. Um, <laughs> he loves us. He has us over for salad every day. Uh, <laughs> and we have nothing but good things to say about Viacom. What's cool about working for Comedy Central is their mission statement essentially is transgressive. So they exist kind of to stir controversy to a certain um, degree. So for some reason, they're, they're like, cool, go darker. Why not? Let's see what happens. Because that is, it, the, the company exists solely for that purpose, essentially. And it's just, it's just another market to capture, the anti-corporate. Right. <laughs> which, which is an episode in season one. Yeah. There's, a, there's like a whole like sort of Banksy-ish character who, you know, it turns out it is just like part of the machine in the same way everyone else is. Right? Yeah, and Hamptonville produces anti-Hamptonville merchandise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We ha- we have had situations with like meetings with Comedy Central or Viacom where it feels a little too meta for what's happening. Like a conference call that goes on way too long. Where- conference calls, by the way, are the most nightmarish, confusing things in my life where I never know when to talk and everyone is constantly talking over each other and it takes 20 minutes to get into it. We did once go, we had a meeting once at Comedy Central, uh, like a marketing meeting for season one where they were like, we need you to come to Santa Monica to do a video conference call with New York. And we were like, do we really have to drive to Santa Monica? And they were like, yes. So we drove to Santa Monica and got there. And then they couldn't set up the video conference. So then we just had a conference call that we could have done from anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it took four hours out of our day. So we almost did an episode about that. But it's, yeah, that type of thing happens all the time. What what kind of experience do you guys have working in the type of environment that it in a corporate environment, basically. Um, I uh, I moved out here. I got a business or marketing and English degree from college. And so when I moved out here, while I was doing stand-up comedy and writing, I was paying the bills by taking like marketing and social media and copywriting jobs at various entertainment companies. Um, and they were all, or many of them had a very similar tone and feel to corporate. I won't name their names because this is a variety podcast and we love variety by the way um but you're associated with many of the people that i worked with who who the show is based on um not variety specifically but um uh but yeah and it i just found myself leaving on friday not looking forward to the weekend but instead dreading coming back monday and just like confused about what i was doing and felt like i was in a prison that i was voluntarily putting myself into and i just um i had a Every about every six months, I would desperately try to get a new job and to get out of the one I was in. But then the new job would be just similarly hellish in a slightly different way. And so it was sort of that experience over and over again that started making me and then the three of us think about um, this type of show. But it's also relatable. I think anyone who's at a shitty boss can relate to this type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the show, Matt and Jake are. Um, weirdly like they each have their own sort of moral code in this weird way like they are involved and they're they're both amoral in certain ways but they also like they they weirdly have their own sort of sets of rules that they stick to i mean is that intentional and and if so what's the purpose for that yeah i i think that well first of all everyone lives by moral code so i think if you're thinking about 
your characters, you should probably think about what morality they have. I, I personally think in life, I'm a pretty dark, fairly acerbic human being. Um, I don't have that many close friends and, uh, (laughs) I push people away, but I do think that I try, I think often in life there's this kind of trick you see and you see it a lot with like people, let's say like Bill Cosby, right. Who have this certain image of like, I love kids and jello and they're kind of a monster. Um, whereas some people who appear darker and maybe a little more, like they have like thorns on them essentially often are actually pretty nice. Uh, they're just getting all their bullshit out. And, um, although my character does want to rise up in the ladder, I do think he's like deeply sensitive and actually is kind of more morally sound sometimes than Matt who, and Matt is kind of wants to like be an interesting guy and wants to have like a good, interesting life. And, and often his sort of willingness to do anything makes him more morally corrupt than Jake is who just kind of is, kind of a dick kind of like kind of like a cynical dick but he won't do certain things that matt would do simply because he just wants to be interesting and wants to be successful in a generic way i think it's also just the difference between kind of naive optimism and hardened cynicism after having been alive for a little longer where matt i think is a lot more hopeful still has hope that things will turn out well whereas jake is sort of like they will not, no matter what avenue you follow in life. Um, and so I think it's funny to balance those two sides of of the of the same coin. I think Jake represents also just sort of like blunt capitalist uh, buying into the system in a way where it's like, well, it's too late, so fuck it. I'll just do it. Who cares? Like, we've lost the game. I might as well play it, I guess. You know, whereas Matt still is like, Maybe I'll do something with my life. (laughs) In my head, as I watch the show, I always feel like Jake has been there for two years longer than Matt has. That's exactly right. And we do think of it a little bit like, because all the characters are morally corrupted to some extent or another. And sort of the further you get up in the ladder, the more corrupted they are. And largely it's a systemic problem or the way that we sort of think about it when we're writing is, the characters aren't inherently evil. They are just a part of a system that bends them that way over time. So like Matt's been there the shortest period of time. So he still is like, has, has a smile on his face and hope in his heart. And then his boss is like a true nightmare. And the CEO of the company is like a demon essentially. So it's sort of like that's, um, yeah, part of the structure of the show as well. Right. Um, Weird thing about Hampton DeVille is that although it's like really uh, sort of a hellscape of of a workplace, it's also like strangely diverse and inclusive. (laughs) And I wondered if that was if that was intentional when you guys went about like building it. I think we just wanted to cast like people we loved and and thought were interesting and 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 didn't. um, Yeah, think much of it past that, you know, I think. I think that we're three straight white men and uh, we're not trying to pander to anyone. We're very against pandering in any way, but I think it's important. We understand our privilege and I think an important thing for a lot of shows, especially with casting or writing is to be diverse and not make a big deal out of it. Like not talk about how amazing you are for doing it. It's like everyone is equally incredible and there's no reason to have everyone look the same. It's also way more interesting to have different people uh, in your show, it's more fun to look at. It's better for everyone, but we're not trying to pat ourselves on the back. It's just how we think and what we think makes things better. As you've got like a sort of um, 
you know, a premise and then you've got these two characters that you're sort of building. How do you then like go about like deciding like these are the these are the types of characters that we're going to put around them to have them interact with and bounce off of and bump up against? Yeah, I think it's like it kind of happened organically of like the way Kate and John's characters have evolved to at first at first level, they're just these sort of authority figures. But then it's kind of interesting as time passes, the dynamics you have between people get more and more complicated and you get to see these different sides of the characters. And I think for us, it's it's fun to explore because Matt and Jake are kind of in this um, middle ground, this kind of purgatory of, of status in the company where they have bosses that kind of control their whole lives, but they're also bosses to other people. So they get resentment sort of from both sides and kind of putting them in different situations that test their uh, power or their kind of like how they treat other people as well as how they like get treated. Is there, is there continuity in the show? Because I, I've got to watch the, the season premiere and there's a reference in there to, uh, to, to Kate and John having sex in season one. And I felt like it was the first time that I, that, that we got any indication that like each of these episodes doesn't happen in a weird little vacuum. Like that's not completely, episodic i guess yeah. mm-hmm. i think we're playing with form a little bit uh we sort of have this um almost every episode's kind of like an infinite loop where it all kind of ends back it's like there's hope and then it ends back at zero so we're always playing with that and our show is slightly surreal because we do like to make surreal comedy but we we try to lightly build narratives like that that play like the john and kate have sex in an episode in season one and then you know it really just comes back in in the first episode of and and another episode kind of in season two, but we just want a looser sort of framework. And sometimes some actors aren't in some episodes because it's not about them. We wanted a more wider palette to play with. We don't want to be too stuck to narrative because every episode is kind of like an essay for us on a separate topic. So if the idea is pertinent, it comes back, but it doesn't necessarily have to. Right. Um, you guys also get to work with Aparna Nancharla, who's like just one of the best comics around these days. I was just wondering how, you know, how she got cast and what it's been like to have her involved. Um, we've known Aparna for many years now because we all met doing stand-up and Jake and I have done it for many years. And so we did like open mics with Aparna in the basements of hotels on the east side. And so we've had a sort of shared connection to her and, and friendship for a long time. And, um... When we were yeah looking to round out the cast a little more, and um, we wanted to bring someone on who it made sense for Jake and I to be friends with and had a dynamic that you would believe versus sort of like a more generic TV dynamic where it's like, I guess these two people are friends, but would they <laughs> actually ever be friends in real life? And so it Aparna like you said, is incredibly talented and funny and has such a well-defined voice that it was really fun to imagine her a part of this world um, as just sort of like a weird nightmare, not nightmare, like a weird, like a dark unicorn in, in, in the Hampton Deville offices. <laughs> I think also kind of what Matt said is the thing that people don't realize is if you're filming something with someone, you better be friends with them <laughs> like if you can because you're spending a lot of time with them and it, it working on a film set is very hard work and it's long arduous hours and if you can be friends with each other and have the same point of view it really makes there's something 
intangible that comes across while filming it. So she does share our dark, silly view of the world. And it's just, it comes out in the show. She fits there. And it's because she's our friend and thinks everything sucks, but is funny. Right. <laughs> um, how does the writing process work for you guys? I mean, the, the three of you, and I would imagine other writers that you have working for you. I mean, how do you, how do you sort of divvy things up? Uh, well, it starts, it's a real process because I think we kind of just start with conversations about like what we think about all the time or what we find interesting or have been noticing in our lives and try to like spin kind of stories out of that that make sense for our characters. And we have uh, a small writer's room uh, with a few people in addition to ourselves that, you know, we kind of like break all the stories together and kind of figure out the episodes. Um, and then, yeah, there's different periods where we go off on our own and like write stuff and then bring it back to the group. It's very collaborative. Um, yeah. Yeah. We typically do Jake, Pat and I take some retreats before the room starts up to kind of get big picture what we want to talk about and, and some specific ideas that we want to focus on and then bring it back to the room. And yeah, we like, we prefer a smaller room because I mean, partially we've heard so many nightmare stories about large sitcoms with 13 writers in the room and it's political and weird. And we wanted to just create a really small collaborative environment where everyone's voice is taken seriously and and uh yeah and then yeah the process then we write the episodes and it's easy and there <laughs> and no and no problems ever come up <laughs> um the big room versus small room thing um you know are there downsides to having the smaller room does it make it slower to to get through episodes break episodes I actually don't think there's much of a downside to a smaller room because it depends on who's in the room. If you have like six or seven good writers, I think that should be enough. That being said, it's really hard work. And so sometimes with six people, you don't have the answer right away. And if you had two more people, maybe you would. But then you have to manage two more people because we run the room. So it's it's a lot of work to run a room. You're the boss and you're also a writer and you have to go home after work and finish the job. So I tend to think a small but concentrated room that's passionate about the project is the best because then you have like a uniformity of vision but also enough people to call bullshit when something's not good. But in general, if there's 13 writers or six writers, uh, writing is hell. <laughs> and it's a very privileged hell, but it's absolute hell. And to make something great, it's going to hurt everyone involved. And that's just what <laughs> writing is. And that's what writing is, but that's what creates something beautiful. And then what you have to do is, while you're writing, just imagine a year from now when this will all be filmed and edited. <laughs> and then it's done. And then you write something new. Um, I'm wondering, when you ahead of season two, uh, when you guys were talking about like big picture, what you wanted to do... Um, you know, the news moves really fast and like the economy is changing really fast. Um, Christmas is always a good reminder of that. Um, so were there like sort of big, not necessarily like responding to like the Trump of things or anything, but were there like macro things in the news that you looked at that you were like, you know, the, these are things that could be fodder for us? Um, yeah, I mean, the news itself is something that we tackle in season two. And, and like, again, we we try to dig a little deeper than responding directly to Trump because there's just enough of that out there. And, yeah, we're inevitably behind the news cycle by a year or whatever. So, um, but just the um, in the last 20 to 30 years, the way the news has warped into just literally a product that is sold online and, like, the ec economy, the way... 
the economy of the news now is has perverted it in a way or whether the people who make the news wanted to be or not they have to engage with the um way they that the company makes money now which is through clicks and and it's essentially bad for everyone that this is how it is and so we sort of dig into how capitalism and and the internet has warped the news into a product and and what that does to society you know also and kind of tied into that there's uh our finale of season two really digs into this feeling that is kind of pervading the news a little bit that the end is near of like society collapsing or this sort of like almost nihilism of like ignoring things that are going wrong with a sort of sense of it all is going to like collapse and there's stories of like um, billionaires buying luxury survival condos, like an old m- nuclear missile silos, like that's out there happening. And I think that that was kind of a funny like irony to us of like, or just the like human folly of like planning for after horrible things happen. The sort of like positive thinking of that, of like, I'm going to have a nice place after like, <laughs> you know, the world is ending. And the different sort of like coping mechanisms of dealing with, the problems that are like in the news are uh, inevitable. One other thing we wanted to do with this season is do something we didn't really do in season one, which is kind of talk about getting older and sort of accepting life a little more. We have an episode episode called The Concert, which is literally about how going to concerts just isn't that fun anymore. And it, and it's how like you just have your job and it makes you tired and you, you want to go to these concerts and be young, but you can't because you really would rather stay home. And, right. and so we wanted to talk about sort of aging and kind of how your job just kind of becomes your life and you better accept that because you need to keep making money. And I think all these things can coexist in our show because it's not that linear like uh, the the narrative and we want things to be lightly linear but be able to talk about kind of anything we want to talk about i'm so looking forward to that episode by the way (laughs) it's a it's a good one and um the finale the the end of the episode i i hope you really relate to it uh and i won't say more than that but i think you will understand when you see it got it um uh, there it's constantly like on it's a joke people make on twitter now like darkest timeline darkest timeline but like there's a definite darkest timelineness to this show and like what you were just talking about pat the um sort of like funny thing about feeling like you're at the end of the world i mean what is it about like that sort of like i don't know end of the world feeling that is that is funny Yeah, I think it's like, it just is like, it feels insane to read the the articles that came out recently about global warming where it's, they're essentially like, well, there's no turning back. <laughs> um, and it's just re- reading that alongside an article about Miley Cyrus or something. And, and they're essentially given the same weight. So on one hand, you're like, I guess by the end of my life, I'm going to start seeing horrifying things happen to humanity. Uh, but also I'm hungry right now. Um, <laughs> it's the, it's the sort of dichotomy that exists at all times, which we can't help but try to find comedy in, which is we are rocketing towards the end, but day to day we're bored and <laughs> the internet connection is slow. And I mean, I'm going to yell at somebody at AT&T about that right now. So it's just like, it, it's one of those things that is sort of so terrifying and bad that we find no other option than to have a sense of humor about it and hopefully that's what the show accomplishes is like we are we are living in hell that there is like 
There's, you can eat a scum. I ate a, I ate a muffin earlier, and it was so delicious. Um, but we're living in an, an insane reality that seems to be getting worse and worse. And uh, I want to choose to have at least a bit of a sense of humor about it, or else I will. I don't know. I just want to enjoy muffins, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Thank you guys very much for doing this. In 2018, 495 original scripted shows debuted new seasons on TV. 2019 will see even more. Variety TV critics Daniel Daddario and Caroline Framke talked about what they're looking forward to in the year ahead. Hi, my name is Caroline Framke. I'm one of the TV critics here at Variety along with... I'm Daniel Daddario. And we're here to tell you about some of the shows that are coming up in 2019. A small selection, given how many there are out there, but we're going to run down some of the returning stuff, the new stuff, and some of the shows that are saying goodbye. Uh, first, we'll go to the returning shows. Uh, first up, we have Big Little Lies, season two from HBO, which I have mixed feelings about because I didn't think they needed a season two. I thought it was perfect, but... <laughs> but I would agree... And I'm not going to be the advocate for them renewing a closed-ended show, but it's hard to deny that it's an exciting prospect to see these characters again. Plus Meryl Streep. Yes, plus plus Meryl Streep is Nicole Kidman's mother-in-law, so that is something to look forward to. Yes. Uh, we also, from HBO, have True Detective, which I know you've seen some of. I've seen about the first half. Uh, Mahershala Ali is absolutely fantastic as the detective at the center. And it's really refreshing how kind of pared down the plot is after a second season whose great flaw was its extreme narrative excess. Uh, speaking of excess, just yes. in all about, in all areas, we have Stranger Things coming back for season three in Netflix. Uh, that's another show that's sort of more the merrier in terms of how much it's doing at all times. But second season was pretty fun. So if you're into Stranger Things, I think there's no reason why you shouldn't look forward to season three. Yeah, it's always more fun to have it around than not. It's nice to have like a consensus hit, albeit one we don't quite know how popular it is. But we can assume that <laughs> a lot of people will be tuning in. Right. Uh, and then one show that's had a weird, uh, a weird road back to television is Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was canceled by Fox in the fall and then picked up by NBC less than 24 hours later. Uh, I'm personally really excited for that. I generally don't need shows to go on forever, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine is as good as it's ever been. And having seen the first two, uh, it's still the same show. So that's great. Consistency is great. Uh, then we got some new stuff. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Watchmen? Yeah, absolutely. So I think HBO is looking to the future and realizing how much fun it is to have a huge hit property on their hands. And <laughs> Who wouldn't want that? Exactly, if not more than one. And I think that Watchmen, uh, the very popular graphic novel that was turned into a pretty reviled movie, has <laughs> within it enough plot to sustain a television series, and they've enlisted Damon Lindelof, whose series The Leftovers was so creatively successful, to bring those storylines out. Um, the cast, including Regina King, is pretty phenomenal, and I think everyone from core genre fans to more casual TV fans will end up being pretty excited uh, to tune in. Yeah, I think... It should be an interesting combination of stuff Lindelof learned from Lost and The Leftovers. So, you know, even having not uh, known that much about Watchmen in general, I'm excited to see his interpretation of it. We're expecting that probably in the fall after the end of Game of Thrones, which we'll get to later. Yes. Um, and 
I'm also very excited for somewhere, something elsewhere in the cable universe. Um, Showtime is putting together a series about the um, stock market crash in the 1980s and made it a 30-minute comedy mm. starring Regina Hall, Don Cheadle, and Andrew Rannells and created by Happy Endings creator my, uh, David Caspi. Um, I'm really excited for this. I think it's a really interesting idea. I have yet to screen, but I think it's cool that they're doing something really off the beaten path with this. Mm-hmm. And speaking of off the beaten path, I know you are really excited about Russian Doll. Ugh, Russian Doll. I can't wait to talk to everyone about Russian Doll, but I can't until it premieres on February 1st because I have to tell you, I've just watched all of it. Uh, and it's short. It's eight episodes. It's really fun to watch knowing nothing about it. But one thing I can tell you about it is that it's co-created by uh, Leslie Headland, director of Bachelorette and Sleeping with Other People, Natasha Leone of Orange is the New Black and Many Things, and Amy Poehler of Many Things. Uh, so that's a great team. It's really fun. Talk to me on February 2nd once you've watched it. And the circle of life continues as we say hello to all these exciting new projects. We already know that we're going to be saying goodbye to some shows in the coming year. Uh, some of which I think probably it's their time. Mm-hmm. I know that you feel that way about Jane the Virgin. Yes, I love Jane the Virgin, but I more so, like probably even more so, love shows that end in the way that they want to on their own terms without dragging things on. And so Jane is coming back for a fifth and final season, and I'm really excited to see how it goes because I trust them at this point. <laughs> I feel the same way about Veep, a show that I think has a very special place in television history, but a show that, if we're being honest, its most recent season was a little off its peak. I think they've told all the story they need to tell. They can come back and give us one really sharp bonus season and then kind of stride into the sunset knowing they did a really good job. I think it's the kind of show that knowing there's an end point... um, will help them produce some of their better, more focused work. I feel the same way about Broad City. Mm-hmm. I think knowing that this is their fifth and final season, uh, they know what they have to wrap up, who they want to see uh, come back or not. And I'm excited to see where Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer go after this. But in the meantime, I just really like this show. So I'm happy to have it back for even just a little bit. That's how I feel about Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> I'm just happy to have uh, six more episodes of, of Westeros. So, like, they're movies at this point. They, they are fully feature length. Um, and I feel as though, get ready, it's going to catalyze a huge amount of conversation. And no matter what happens, a lot of people are going to be disappointed because their favorite didn't win. But that's the name of the game. Sansa. I am Team John. <laughs> And, and with that, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Well, this debate will continue all through 2019. I'm Daniel Daddario. I'm Caroline Framke. And there's always more TV where that came from. Golden Globe Awards are set to take place Sunday in Beverly Hills. I talked with Variety's senior editor for TV Awards, Michael Schneider, about what to expect in the telecast and the TV categories. So, Mike, what's the biggest thing you're going to be watching for on Sunday night? <laughs> You know, the, the the biggest thing I'm going to watch for, first off, is the hosts. Uh, I'm actually inspired by the choice of Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh. Uh, you know, we all thought that Samberg was going to get it. That was a clear no-brainer. You know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine coming to NBC. They want to promote that. Samberg has done this before. He's hosted the Emmys, and this is more of a party than the Emmys are, so it's a piece of cake for him. Pairing him with Sandra Oh was really interesting. Uh, you know, obviously... They, they had a great bit, although it was really short during the Emmys. So honestly, we don't know long form how they're going to do together. But they showed some real chemistry. 
Uh, she showed sort of a wry wit that m- perhaps we haven't seen in the past because of Grey's Anatomy, although we saw some of it in Killing Eve. Uh, and and to see them together uh, should be kind of fun, different, uh, and and definitely in in the vein of what the Globes has done in recent years with hosts. So, yeah. so if I'm looking at anything, I'm kind of looking more toward them than the actual awards. Because let's be honest, Dan, <laughs> it's the Globes. They're it's fun. The, Globes. the awards are fun to watch. They, there's always a crazy category uh, win that we're all scratching our heads over, but. Ultimately, it doesn't mean that much. If you had to guess where that crazy category win that will have us all, um, as you said, scratching our heads the next day, where do you think that's going to come in? Um, That's a good question. I'm just kind of looking at some of the categories now. I mean, I think the big question is going to be drama. Because uh, there's there's no obvious front runner here. Uh, you know, last year's uh, winner was The Handmaid's Tale, which was not nominated this year. So you have a lot of great shows here, a lot of new shows with Killing Eve, my personal favorite. Uh, you know, wouldn't be mad if it won. And plus Sandra O oh hosting, that'd be amazing. Uh, but then you also have Homecoming, which was polarizing. I know some people found it slow. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it, it definitely was stylish. And you've got Julia Roberts. And if there's anything we know about the HFPA, it's that they love their superstars. They do love the movie stars. They right? love the movie stars. So you could see that potentially winning. Bodyguard, uh, a, a very uh, you know British, uh, very overseas kind of show, very international series. So maybe that will pique their interest. Of course, the Americans is there if they want to you know give it one last piece of love and uh, send it out uh, with with a globe. Doubtful, but it's still there too. And they've got Pose, which is a show that obviously said a lot, meant a lot, was very groundbreaking for uh, its its uh, you know inclusion of. Uh, uh, transgender stars, uh, and, and uh, you know they love their Ryan Murphy over there as well at the HFPA. So it's really impossible to some degree <laughs> to tell what's going to win there. So I'm kind of fascinated to see what they pick. I'm guessing Killing Eve. Yeah. When you look at the comedy series category, then how do you uh, how do you handicap that? That's an easier one because uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel won last year. And Amazon, really, I don't know what they do. They, they must uh, pack you know, something sweet <laughs> in those gift bags that they uh, give, give the HFPA members. But Amazon tends to do pretty well uh, at, at the Globes. And Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Season 2 is nominated. I'm guessing that wins again. That's definitely the front runner. You do have Barry and, uh, you know, uh, Bill Hader, as as we see from your cover story in uh, Variety magazine, is is obviously on fire right now, and that's such a fantastic show. Uh, you know, you've got the Good Place, which I love, but it's probably a little too obscure for the HFPA to to vote for. Kidding again, you've got uh, Jim Carrey, who is a, again a superstar, and uh, you know who the HFPA I think generally likes. So that that's a dark horse, but that's also a show that, speaking of a dark horse, it's just a dark show. And I think a lot of folks would argue maybe not necessarily a comedy. Uh, and then you've got the Kaminsky method, which, again, you've got uh, some, some alter cockers, as they say, right? Uh, some, some old-time superstars in Michael Douglas and Adam Arkin, uh, who – I said Adam Arkin. I meant Alan Arkin. Uh, that's the son. Uh, but, uh, you know, who are, are legends and who the voters may, uh, you know, lean toward just because of their legendary status. But, again, pick to click, marvelous Mrs. Maisel. When you look at 
those two big categories like how what's indicative about just sort of the the idiosyncrasies of the hfpa and the sort of little weirdnesses that we've all gotten used to over the years yeah i think i think they've gotten better over the years i think they they really take their 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 tastemaker status seriously now the fact that they come in january and they're able to award shows that the emmys hasn't been able to get to yet uh they they take seriously uh, and and that really means something, and that's why you have so many new shows on here, uh, including Homecoming and Pose. Uh, but on the other hand, you also have shows that uh, have been around, and, and this is kind of a catch twenty two for them too, because you know a lot of these shows have already been awarded uh, at the Emmys, uh, especially in the limited series uh, category, because you've got Assassination of Johnny Versace, American Crime Story, which uh, you know would conceivably be a front runner, but it feels like. That show it felt felt like it was three years ago now. Now People versus OJ won in uh, you know two years ago in 2016, even though it already won the Emmys. So there's a chance they could award it again. My guess though is they go in the limited series category uh, more toward a very English Scandal, which of course again Hugh Grant, international superstar, uh, which they love. Uh, so so going back to the idiosyncrasies question. Uh, clearly, they love their superstars. They love their international talent, uh, which is why the Hugh Grants, the Julia Roberts of the world seem to be front runners most of the time. And uh, I get it. You know, it's it's a group of, uh, you know, these these, uh, you know, journalists, uh, journalists, question, <laughs> question <mark>. asterisk. <laughs> no, they write uh, who, uh, you know, tend to you know be be wined and dined and, and they get some real great face time with superstars. And I think that matters. I think that really does have an impact. I mean, let's face it. It matters for all of us. Yep. You and you and I even uh, can be swayed sometimes if, if we have a chance to sit down with a star, talk to them, get their sense on what they're doing. And, and uh, it gives us a new perspective on their project. Um, you know, I did a panel with Hugh Grant a couple months ago, and that really made me appreciate uh, a very English scandal a little bit more, uh, just because getting to talk to him about his choices and, and working with Ben Wishaw and, and some of the things that he did, it's like, you know what, this was kind of a really fun limited series that was on the pile, but came, rose a little bit on the pile after I had a chance to talk to the stars. So I think that happens uh, just times 100 with the HFPA. When you talked about the HFPA's status as tastemakers, and if you look at what they did for Maisel or for you know people like Gina Rodriguez in past years, uh, is there any actor or show you feel like among the nominees that um, the Globes could potentially sort of tee up for for a lot broader recognition than has that they've gotten already? I'm thinking Pose, honestly. That that's one that's sort of almost been a, a sleeper. Uh, it did very well in the ratings, but not a lot of people are talking about it. And I think that's a, a, a factor of too much TV, peak TV, and, and also too much Ryan Murphy, peak Ryan Murphy, perhaps. But I think people, as they stood back and, and started to look at the year, appreciated it even more, and were reminded when the Globes nominated Pose that hey, this is a show that's worth paying attention to. And that could potentially impact season two of the show uh, and, and, of course, Emmy nominations. So, you know, looking down at the list, uh, you know, you also had Billy Porter nominated for Pose as Best Actor in a Drama Series. Uh, and and uh, let's see. And, and as, uh, looking at all the categories, that's probably the show that stands to benefit the most, I would say, going forward as we hit TV awards season in the coming months. All right. Thanks very much, Mike. All right. Thanks, Dan. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week talking with Alex Kurtzman, executive producer of CBS All Access series, Star Trek Discovery. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.